0: Uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein said that thinking is nasty. And I get um, people come up to me, and when they hear I'm a pastor, they assume that I, I'm nice, and that what it means to be a Christian is to out-nice everybody else. Um, so I'm just a spoiler alert, I'm not nice. Um, I, as we enter into a subject like this, I know that there is different opinions in the room. I know that there are ways in which the subject of sexuality and identity uh, impacts us, and it impacts us in ways that some of us are aware, but it impacts those of us in this room in ways that um, nobody in the room may be aware. I know that it's a topic that when we talk about Christianity and sexuality, there's a shame narrative to it, and that Presumably, we're supposed to be perfect and pure, and um, you start talking about this particular thing, and none of us measures up, and, and I mean, it's, it's challenging, and it's hard. And I believe that the scriptural teaching about sexuality is good news. And I believe Leviticus is good news and I'm going to share the hope that is within me toward this end. But I recognize that you're going to have to almost suspend disbelief to, to stay tuned to this. So as I promised, I'm going to do a detour. i want to talk for a few minutes about a dead Greek guy named Aristotle and come back to Leviticus. Aristotle had a way of thinking about the world, um, that I've taken a shine to. And what he said was that humans are by nature relational. We live in a really individualistic culture. We champion the individual. Um, we speak in terms of rights and individuals. We live in a society, and individualism has served us well in many, many respects. But Aristotle wants to say is that humans can't understand who they are outside of relationship. And that the quality of our life is directly related to the quality of our relationships. And that it's not the case that any of us is a kind of a rock, an island. It's the case that we're made for relationship. He said that there were three fundamental relationships that everybody has, And um, the quality of those relationships impact our lives significantly and directly. And the first one is family. That the quality of our life is related to family, for better or for worse. Some of us come from families that are nurturing, and uh, none of us comes from a perfect family, but some of us comes from families that are just really significant and matter. And when I moved away from home, at 18, I would never wanted to go back. Families can be really hard. If I get up in front of my college students and speak about the quality of life is related to family, you can see people move their heads away, that they are have a sense that they're doomed because their family is broken and the families they came from were dysfunctional, if not worse. And we live in a lot of relational brokenness in our world. Aristotle is not saying that life isn't worth living if your family's not good. But family matters. It's inescapable. And maybe you can't go back and fix the family of your childhood, but um, moving forward, as you think about family and creating family, recognize that the quality of your life is going to be connected significantly to quality of family. The second relationship, he says, is really significant to us is neighborhood. And neighborhood is constellation of families that live in proximity to each other. Now, normally, I, when I meet people, they didn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, you know, neighborhood's significant, that matters, that's good. We live in an individualistic culture, and in some fashion, it's easy to be in a neighborhood with human beings, and you have no idea who they are and they have no idea who you are. I come from New Hampshire, our poet laureate, Robert Frost, said tall fences make good neighbors. (laughs) We're kind of the anti-neighborhood place, but if you wanna buy a house, you'll pay a premium to live certain places and you hope that you won't have to pay a premium to live in some other places because everybody in the room understands that neighborhood does matter. That the reality is, is that as we live our lives, we recognize that neighborhoods do matter and those relationships matter. And if you're in a neighborhood where people look out after each other and care for each other, to, you know, look after you, if your kids, you can trust your kids with them, that's a good that you can't buy. And if you live in a neighborhood where you can't trust your neighbors, where you're concerned for your safety or your property... It impacts your life significantly. And the third relationship is the city. And for Aristotle, the city is the place where there's uh, specialization. So, you know, if I got up in front of you and I had to make my own clothes, it would be bad. It would be embarrassing. The city gives you specializations so that there's tailors and cobblers and people that educate your kids and teach music and all those different things. And cities impact the quality of our lives. There's a difference between living on the west side and living in Beirut, Lebanon. There's a difference between living in Manchester, New Hampshire and Kabul, Afghanistan that there may be things about our world that we don't like, or our city that we don't like, and our neighborhood that we don't like, but when we step back, we realize that all three of these matter. And they shape us deeply and profoundly. Now, Aristotle said that we as human beings ask a question. And the question that we ask is that if anybody really knew us, would they love us? If anybody really knew who we were, (laughs) would they love us? And it's often the case that we say that those are the questions that are answered in family, marriage, or whatever. And Aristotle's argument is that's actually not true. These first three relationships I mentioned, family and neighborhood and city, If you're in a family, you're supposed to take care of each other. If you live in a neighborhood, you're supposed to fulfill your obligations, your city, etc. There's this justice thing. And so in a certain sense, you don't get the question answered about whether you can be loved out of those three relationships because people are supposed to love you. Aristotle argues that there's a fourth relationship. It's called friendship. For Aristotle, a friendship is a relationship in which you love somebody for who they are, and they love you for who you are, and there's no contract. It's choice, day after day, week after week, year after year. And Aristotle says that it's in friendship that we end up developing this dimension of understanding if we can be loved for who we are. And that if during the course of our lives we have two or three or four really good friends, we have a gift that's priceless, that really matters, and dramatically impacts our ability to love if we know what love is if we know what it is to be cared for if we know that we have value it is it unleashes us relationally in these other relationships but relationships are painful you know i if i hear steely dan's asia album which for the most part you guys weren't even a glimmer in your parents' eye back in 78 but I'm immediately transfixed back to the Jersey Shore where a young woman looked at me and said the words that you never want to hear let's just be friends (laughs) I know, thank you you're feeling my pain (laughs) it's relationship life is painful relationships are painful and we all come to these points where we say to ourselves i'm not going to allow myself to be burned again i am not going to allow myself to be burned again i have given and i have given and i my heart has been broken and i just can't, i'm not going to do it anymore and aristotle says that if we opt out of relationship for this reason, which is understandable. We've all been there. We may be there now. He says, we have no choice, really, but to try to live independently. If you're not going to be in relationship, you need to have independence. And in order to get true independence, you have to develop independent means. So... Aristotle argues in a relational world, you don't have to have a lot of money because the quality of your life, it's not based on your standard of living, it's based on the quality of your relationship. But but if you're going to live independently, you have to get independent means. Now, some people are like me, which they specialize in debt enhancement. And Aristotle asks, what kind of life is it if you spend your whole life trying to get independent means and you die before you get there? What kind of life is that? I'm certain we could, certain people are in our mind's eye. But he says, well, even if you get it, if you get the independent means, and when I think of you know, you get independent means, so you build a castle with a motor around it. I think of the Bat Cave, but I'm sure we've got other <laughs> images. Driving your Ferrari through town, go into your mansion, take your elevator up to the kitchen, make yourself some dinner, sit down in front of the fireplace by yourself to eat your meal. Aristotle says you're sitting there, sitting by yourself to eat your meal. What's your first thought? And Aristotle said, all of us in the room know the first thought. And the first thought is, I'm lonely. So Aristotle says, as we sit here today, we know that money won't make us happy. As we sit here today, we know that things won't make us happy. Aristotle said, there's nothing we can imagine that if we get it, we won't become bored with it. There's nothing we can imagine that if we get it, we won't become bored with it. Imagine your ideal car. Drive it for three years. Imagine your ideal house. Live in it for three years. Imagine your ideal cell phone. Have it for six months. And likewise... There's no person we can imagine that if we get them, we won't become bored with them. Imagine your ideal spouse lived with them for seven years. Are they still your ideal spouse? Aristotle says that if we're going to try to find satisfaction in things, we become consumers. Consumers. And humans have this intense desire to know and to be known. And once we get to know something as a consumer, we discard it. And we do the same thing in relationships. We get to know somebody and we discard them. And he says there's a fifth relationship, and I assure you it's the last one. And he called it philosophy, but this is what he said. This is the highbrow moment of the, whole lecture, of the whole sermon. The only thing that can fascinate a human being is for us to be able to spend eternity seeking to know it and never fully know it. The only thing that can captivate a human being is for us to spend, be able to be in a relationship with something where we could spend eternity seeking to know it and never fully know it. It's not surprising that Thomas Aquinas comes along in the Middle Ages and says Aristotle's talking about God. Blaise Pascal, there's a god-shaped hole in our heart that only God can fill. And what Aristotle he called this contemplation, philosophy. <laughs> and what he said was that if we were able to be in connection with the divine then we could find something in our other relationships, and it's a word that's almost never used in America. We could find contentment in our other relationships. That if we were in relationship with this divine, we wouldn't ask others to be God to us. We wouldn't ask others to fill this void that only that can fill. And then we can find a way to live well in these other relationships. Huh. Now you came here today, promised that you have a sermon on sex. And what have we talked about? Well, Aristotle had a sexual ethic. The sexual ethic is that, marriage, uh, that sex sexual relations should be confined to a marriage between a man and a woman. Now when I say that, sometimes people are a little incredulous because they know enough about Greek life and um, platonic dialogues and others to know that there's a fair amount of homosexuality in the dialogues and um, the Greeks don't have a conception of sin so this is not Aristotle talking about going to hell or anything like that There's nothing to do with that so you say well why an ethic like that in a society that may be kind of promiscuous He argued that sexuality is an appetite, and appetites by their nature are insatiable. And sexuality is a drive, and it matters, and it's important, and procreation matters, all that stuff matters. But because it's insatiable, the more you feed it, the more that you want it, not unlike Pornography. It's, a nice, it's an illustration. That, you know, the more you feed it, the more it requires. The more you have to feed it in order to get the right buzz, or whatever you what it whatever it is, there is this appetite part of sexuality. And his argument was don't sexualize friendship. And you shouldn't sexualize friendship because if you introduce sexual relations into a friendship you introduce an element of slavery meaning that you're introducing this appetite into the relationship and rather loving the other for who they are and being loved for who you are you are introducing an element of slavery and what ends up happening is you can't help but asking yourself what can i get off the other for my own benefit what can i get off the other for my own benefit and, you know, it's all like talking to people and you ask them about a relationship and they say it's complicated. And you have a pretty good idea of what complicated means. It's complicated. It's complicated. So Aristotle's sexual ethic was sex should be confined to a marriage. Its purpose is procreation and introducing sex into any of the other relationships will have the effect of undermining the relationship. Leviticus 18. As we think about Leviticus 18, the question that I think we want to ask is, is Leviticus 18 about the creation of a community or is it about individual fulfillment? We yet live in a society in which we are told, day in and day out, in lots of different ways, that we need to affirm individuals in their own, the identity that they, their, the identity that they embrace and the behavior that they wish to be involved with. And that we are told that we need to congratulate everybody on both uh, their identity and their behavior. And that to not congratulate them is to withhold something that's necessary for their benefit and for their good. And the question is, is the scripture about the creation of a community or is it about the fulfillment of individuals? Leviticus 18, we went through some passages there and they talked about don't have sex with your mom, your dad mother in law and they kept going. They kept going and going and going and and yes, it said you shouldn't lie with a man as a man lies with a woman. That all these different behaviors. I think the British exist to make me feel stupid. (laughs) I was over in the UK talking to a friend of mine who teaches law at the University of Bristol School of Law. And he's an Old Testament scholar and specialized in Old Testament law. And I said, you know, it's really hard to go talk to Christians about Bible and sex. He says, why is that? <laughs> so I'm thinking, isn't it obvious? <laughs> he says, because, you, know, you, you know, you've got Leviticus 18 that has all these sexual offenses, and that's bad. And then you turn to Leviticus 20, talks about the sexual offenses and the death penalty for these kind of things. And... You know, it's, for some reason, people don't like this. And he says, oh, well, he says, well, what, which of the commands, Ten Commandments, does Leviticus 18 um, focus on? So I said, well, it's obvious. It's do not commit adultery, into which he, in his very British way, said, boy, you're stupid. <laughs> he said, it's not that at all. It's honor your father and mother. Leviticus 18 is not about do's and don'ts on sexuality. Leviticus 18 is a passage that has to do with don't engage in these behaviors because what they're going to do is undermine the very structure of family. And there's all these boundaries in this thing. And on one level, it, it all makes sense. And it makes sense because we know that if you begin to scratch the surface of sexual abuse and you begin to find it in families, you find that it usually goes back generations, that it's something that's literally incestuous and that it goes through the generations. And the passage is brutal. Leviticus 18 is not a feel-good passage. I mean, it says, don't do like the Egyptians do. Don't do like the Canaanites did because it was so, what they did, and these, this is what they did, this was so destructive to the family that the land vomits it out. What a, I mean, what a brutal image. And he's saying, don't do this stuff or the land will vomit you out. Now, we live in a world where we like to say there are, Things that we can do that don't have consequences. We don't want to think of terms of things that are not redeemable. We don't like to think of those terms. We like to think that every problem can be solved and every relationship can be fixed. I think what Leviticus 18 is saying, that's simply not true that if you engage in this particular behavior, there are some things that end up going so deep it's almost impossible for society to recover from. And that there's boundaries, sexual boundaries, in families for a reason. And the reason is to protect the children above all and to protect the relationships in the family, to protect the relationships, I'd argue, in the neighborhood, protect the relationships in the city. These boundaries really matter, and if you violate the boundaries, if you violate the boundaries, you you will have hell to pay, and I do not mean that in you're gonna be sent to hell. What it says is, if you engage in this behavior, your life will become hell. Don't do it now, I don't think people want to rip Leviticus eighteen out of their bibles, and i say like Ian Sir Ellen McClellan says that whenever he goes to a hotel and he gets the Gideon Bible, he rips Leviticus eighteen and twenty out of it i think it's I think it's the question about homosexuality I don't think it's I don't think it's incest. I don't think it's that. So you've got this one passage that says, a man shouldn't lie with a man like he lies with a woman. I think that's the part that sticks in our craw. Now here's the question I want to ask. What, what, what brings human flourishing and what brings fulfillment? If it's the case, if it's the case that having sexual freedom and the freedom to have a sexual relationship with the people that we wish to have one with when we want, if that's necessary for human fulfillment, then I think the Bible is bad news. If God designed the world, if he designed us so that we were... We, uh, sexual fulfillment is necessary for the good life, then God did a bad job. Because we know that not everybody's going to get married. So if sexual relations are required for people to have fulfillment and God's designed a world where there's, some people aren't going to be in a sanctioned relationship sexually, then they're screwed. Are we taping this? <laughs> oh gosh. Nor the man behind the curtain. <laughs> and that's the question. Do we do we need to be able to be in a sexual relationship in order to find fulfillment? And I think the scriptural answer to that question is no. I think Leviticus 18 tells us that there's sexual boundaries and that you're not supposed to cross those boundaries and that it's not asking something that's so difficult for us to give up because it's not asking us to give up something we need for human fulfillment. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus says, there's no marriage in heaven. When given a chance to talk about sexuality, he kind of tightens the screws on it and elevates it not just from the physical act of adultery but to the mental or spiritual act of adultery. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus didn't talk about sexuality, in particular, he didn't talk about homosexuality. And I'm not somebody that believes an argument from silence is a very strong argument. I don't think that anybody in the first century would ask a rabbi what they thought about the issue because they know the answer. And Jesus certainly had no problems doing a lot of controversial things such as talking to the woman at the well and crossing the male-female boundary and the Samaritan boundary, etc., etc., etc. I think he could have spoken about it. I don't I don't think Jesus is making an argument that fulfillment, human fulfillment, is found by not being able to be in a sexual relationship. And Paul comes along and says that, uh, you know, if you're going to burn with lust, you might as well get married, but I wish you were like me. Not exactly the most ringing endorsement. (laughs) But we live in a culture, and there is no doubt about it, we live in a culture that says... You need to be able to be in a sexual relationship with whoever it is that you wish to be in. And if you're not allowed that, you're being you're robbed of something you need for your fulfillment. And my belief is, is that the scripture says that's simply not the case. And I think that when, just like you know, we listen to Aristotle talking about things that I think are common sense, I think this is common sense. Can you think of anybody who's been in a sexual relationship for seven years, and after seven years, the sex is what holds it together? It simply doesn't. That the reality is, in order to have healthy and deep relationship, in order to have true intimacy, it's not, it's not the sexual thing. It needs, it's so much more. And that what we realize is, is that there's not a person alive that we could we could have a sexual relationship and we'd get bored with them and we'd get bored with ourselves, we'd get bored with it. The reality is, is that to try to find our fulfillment in sexuality, it's a dead end. I am not saying it's not a drive, because it is. I'm not saying it's not pleasurable, because it is. i I'm not trying to say anything about that, but what I'm trying to say is I think the Scripture is helping us to make sure that we're finding love and fulfillment and intimacy and help us to avoid a dead end. My friend in England, asked him about Leviticus 20, because it says if you commit these acts, then you will die. It says it's the same Hebrew phrase as we find in Genesis 3 when it says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And in the scripture, it could mean death penalty. But normally what it means is that it's a behavior that brings death. It's a behavior that brings the death of a relationship. And so we read this passage in Leviticus 20 about if you do this, you need to die. But he would say that a more faithful uh, Hebrew translation would be that this particular behavior brings death. And it could be immediate, it could be long-term, it could whatever. But it's behavior that brings death. I think that the sexualized culture that we're in people are going to find, wake up and find that it's it's bored. They're bored. That it wasn't that fulfilling. That they never did find somebody that they could spend eternity with and find fascination sexually. I think what the Scripture says is that the Scripture is offering us something, and we've lost the imagination for it. And what the Scripture is offering us is a chance to find a way forward that brings life. And the opportunity to be, part of a, um, to be able to be part of a community in which you can love, be loved for who you are, that you can love other people, that you can learn what healthy relationships are, that you, this community has good boundaries so that people can be safe, and that people are going to find that there's an intimacy among the Christian community that's unlike anything else in the face of the earth, that it's not because we in the community are great because we're not. It's the case that because of the Holy Spirit, things are now possible that weren't possible before. That people will be attracted to us because they need to be in a relationship with God. They want to be attracted to us because they want to be in a relationship with God and find depth and fulfillment and find meanings and find unconditional love and somebody to take care of them when they're young and when they're old and that it's going to be a safe place. And that in order to have a Christian community that works well, it's got to have good boundaries. And it's so easy at this point in in the sermon for people to say, if I bring up the word purity, people are going to say, well, purity is this individualistic category. And I'm saying, brothers and sisters, we need to get ourselves off of this individualism. Your purity matters to the entire community. Your life matters to the entire community. What's going on in you matters to the entire community. If you're going to have intimate relationships in the church of Jesus Christ, then in order to have intimacy, you're, going to have, you're sharing souls with each other. And the reality is, to the extent that you corrupt your soul, you undermine the nature of the community. It's not just about you, and it's not just about your fulfillment, it's not about your happiness, and it's not about your pity party, and it's not about your sin. It's the reason that we need to call ourselves to a high standard is because our lives matter to the community. Your life matters to your family. You know, it's it's the case, we all have had the experience. I mean, I have it as a pastor, but it's not unique to pastors. You have this experience, you're with a family, there's something wrong, you have really have no idea what it is, something's not working, you have no idea what it is, and then you find out one day about X. And now everything makes sense. But it wasn't the case that it, whoever, whatever the X was in the life of the husband will say, It wasn't the case that while nobody knew about it, it didn't matter. The reality is it mattered the entire time. It's just that nobody knew about it. So if what I'm saying is it's not, the scripture is not about making us feel good and whatever. It's saying that there's a way to live and that it's calling us to Embrace it. Now, I don't want to pretend that what I'm saying, especially as it relates to homosexuality, is easy. Oh, here's what I want to say. What it means to follow Jesus is to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow him. It's not easy to be you and it's not easy to be me and if you're somebody with same sex attraction and you pick up leviticus 18 and it says no it's really hard it's really hard and not everyone in the room struggles with that i i'm more i'm more materialistic probably so I struggle with that. And now that I said that, I probably struggle with sex. I mean, it's, just, ah. <laughs> it's really hard to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And it's not the case we all have the same burdens because we don't, but we all have them. Sometimes people want to paint the world in such a way that Um, Certain segments of the population have a unique cross to bear, and I would say they have a cross to bear, but we all have a cross to bear. And the question is not how do we translate this to the culture in a way that everybody likes us. The question is, is it true? Is the scriptural teaching about sexuality good news? And I think it is. I think it, helps. I think it helps everybody who embraces it to follow a path of life that's going to ultimately undermine life. And it's hard. But what I think Jesus is calling us to is a better way. I think he's calling us to depth and to intimacy and to relationship with good boundaries that can last a lifetime and beyond. That pleasing ourselves is never work. Being part of a community matters. That's what we were made for. Let's pray.